Carbon footprint, biodiversity, zero waste, net zero, corporate social responsibility. Have you ever found yourself wondering whether sustainability experts are actually speaking another language? Well, you wouldn't be alone. This week on Put Simply, we're going to unpack some of the jargon and acronyms within this topic and hopefully provide some context to how these things are all related to the climate challenge and our response. I'm Ozan Ibrisim. Welcome to Put Simply. Put Simply is brought to you by Oroka Media, which is a part of Oroka Group, a global boutique consultancy that specialises in public policy, media and training. I'm joined this week by my good friend and Oroka Group founder, Gavin Ryan, to help us navigate this challenge of unpacking sustainability jargons. Welcome, Gavin. How are you? I'm doing very well, Isan. Uh, it's exciting to be joining you. Uh, well, what a topic we have this week. We could do so many episodes, 10, 15, 20, 50, good Lord. On um, this particular topic, given all the jargon that is out there around this issue. Now, Gavin and I are going to put on our political consulting and uh, campaigning hats on for a minute to talk about why we're doing this episode. We know that climate change crisis requires urgent and bold action, and anything that requires this level of urgent action also requires political will and support. Yep, absolutely. Uh, not to mention, it also requires strong grassroots political support and community support. If we want people to get behind this, uh, leaders need to take the people on the journey. People and communities need to feel ownership and to take action collectively. I have to think that many people out there struggling firstly to understand the urgency, given the, the rather alarming data that keeps coming back, but most importantly, understanding what actions governments, businesses and individuals can take to tackle the crisis, given the communications and the jargon that is out there. Whilst it may not be the only reason for a lack of political action. It certainly has to make up for some of the malaise on this issue. If regular people in their communities just can't understand this, then it's impossible for them to be a part of building a political momentum uh, and campaigning to basically change. So let's play our small part in unpacking some of the issue, the jargon, unpacking the jargon, so that anybody who listens to this episode can have a better understanding of the issue. Some of the headlines and LinkedIn posts that they read may make more sense to them as they go around their social media and as they go around their daily lives. It's particularly important as we'll be covering a number of sustainability-related topics in the coming weeks. Well, that's not an ambitious task at all, Gavin, but let's give it a go. To help us with this mammoth task, we're very lucky to be speaking to Dr. Lisa Plitt this week. Dr. Plitt has over 25 years of professional experience in sustainability, environmental law and regulation. She was doing sustainability work before most of us probably ever heard about it. And amongst her many achievements, Dr. Plitt created South Africa's first sustainability index back in 2001. Dr. Plitt joins us from her hometown of Cape Town, South Africa, and is our guest this week on Put Simply. Lisa, welcome to Put Simply. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do? Sure. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you. Um, so uh, by profession, I am an environmental lawyer. But I've spent most of my almost 25 years working as a corporate sustainability advisor. Uh, I currently tutor a course called the Leading Sustainable Corporations, which is presented by the Said Business School in, at Oxford University. I'm also pleased to say I'm an advisor to Oroco Consulting, and I'm a trustee of the Table Mountain Fund. So very much involved in environmental and social issues. Great to have you uh, 
on uh, Put Simply, Lisa. I don't know whether this is actually a thing, but we're going to start with something that we've termed as, as sustainability literacy. And because we're in the business on Put Simply of uh, just creating terms, uh, so you, you please uh, fill us in on that. But how literate do you think most people are when it comes to sustainability terms, concepts that they may uh, hear uh, in the headlines or in everyday life? And why would you say a high level of sustainability literacy is important? Okay, sustainability literacy is a really interesting question because it really is so much in the of the listener rather than necessarily being what it actually is. I, I, part of my PhD, I did a, a little bit of research into what sustainability means to people. And I interviewed numerous uh, academics and business people. And the range of answers I get as to what sustainability means is huge. But I, I think most often the, the term is looked at as an environmental protection measure rather than what it really is, which is a way of making sure that life is balanced. Nothing is... You know, right now we we are overextending our use of natural resources. We are not addressing social equality, and we are making money as much, as fast as we can. And that's the balance is out. And that's sustainability really is trying to redress that and get more equilibrium. I think that the the best way to to really look at sustainability is the balance of people, profit, and planet, which was a term coined a, a couple of years back by uh, John Elkington. And I think that really encapsulates what sustainability is and should mean to everybody. Well, speaking of sustainability terms, concepts, we hear ESG bandied around quite a lot. So could you explain to us what, what ESG is and, and in terms of what are its components and, and how does it relate to each component, one another? Okay, so ESG basically stands for Environment, Social, Society and Governance or Environmental, Social and Governance, depending on how you want to say it. But basically it is the tools to use to address people, planet, prosperity. It's dealing with the, the people and the planet part of it. Basically, for sustainability, you need a balance of, nat of natural capital, social capital, and, and financial capital. That's to, in terms of, of how businesses look at, at capital. And up until now, we've had a great financial system with financial reporting, very clear, very precise. But environmental and social reporting, not so much. So ESG is really looking at how you report on your social and environmental capital, your imp impacts and dependencies, as well as your risks. And governance basically is, is what brings it all together. How you actually manage all that is your governance components of ESG, to put it simply. Lisa, could you put simply for us, what is climate change? Why is it caused? And why is it a crisis? Climate change in the ordinary course refers to the long-term shifts in temperature and weather patterns, which if you look over the Earth's history, billions of years has fluctuated. But the, what's happening now is the speed at which the change is happening. Since the 1800s, temperature has been increasing significantly, and it's all been induced by human activity as opposed to a natural, natural cycles of the Earth. Currently, the Earth, according to the United Nations, has already hit 1.1 degrees warmer than it was pre-industrial revolution. And in the last, since 2016, we've had many months where it's actually been higher than 1.5. And basically, the Earth cannot sustain life with the currently rising temperatures, hence the climate crisis that we are now facing. So we, we've discussed the crisis, the, the issue, the problem, but over the past decade, many policy solutions uh, have come about. Obviously, we can't cover them all in just one episode. Let's just start with those that are in contention or contentious or that are being fought at the moment in the headlines. Could you put simply for us, what is COP? Why is it important? And has it 
achieved anything. COP refers to the Conference of the Parties, being the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The first COP was held in 1995, and as you know, the last one was in 2023 in Dubai. Basically, uh, an opportunity for the signatories to the convention to come together and assess the progress in how they've operationalized the convention. Started with the Kyoto Protocol, um, but since uh, 2015, it's, the focus has been on the Paris Agreement. Uh, and they meet to assess how the, the terms of the agreement have been advanced, if they've been advanced. And obviously, Paris's main focus is preventing the, the global warming from hitting 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And each COP does take progressive steps towards improving upon what happened in the previous year in terms of developing policies, programs, reducing carbon emissions. I think one of the most interesting parts, perhaps, are the just uh, energy transition partnerships that began in uh, COP26, which is in 2021. And in 2023, the COP27 and last year's COP28 both progressed the concept of the loss and damage fund, which basically is looking to compensate those that will be most significantly affected by climate change, yet are the least responsible for the climate actually having changed. Whether the COP is, is successful or not, I think the fact that everybody is talking and it is progress is positive, but I don't think the change is happening fast enough. Targets that were set for 2030 are unlikely to be met. So, And I don't think it's a, a function of COP. I think it's a function of political will and the nece necessity to actually educate everybody about the changes that need to happen and they simply aren't happening fast enough. You mentioned political will, and I think um, you know when it comes to certain solutions that have been put up as a way to combat climate change, obviously uh, they've been politicised. One that comes to mind is is a carbon tax. Um, I know that uh, certainly in many countries this has been the subject of much uh, political discussion, debate, and controversy. How does a carbon tax work? Uh, what's it trying to achieve? And in some of those countries where it's been implemented, has it actually achieved any outcomes? Uh, good question. Carbon tax is basically a way to put a price on carbon. Uh, so the higher the, you, the emission, the greater the tax that the entities is required to pay. The thing about a carbon tax is that for it to really be successful, the revenue should be plowed back into uh, climate-related and or environmental uh, measures that will attack, address climate issues. And that's often where the tax issue becomes problematic because that's not what ha what's happening. Uh, currently, there are about 27 countries that have carbon taxes. The other thing about carbon taxes is some of them are general and some of them are sector-specific. So then that also creates inequity because some polluting sectors are taxed and some aren't. And this is, you know, country to country it differs. So far, it seems that Sweden has, the, has had the most successful uh, carbon tax because it's actually seen growth despite the increase, you know, the addition of a carbon tax. But I think given the, the severity of the crisis, it's inevitable that there has to, has to be some measure put in place to require the reduction of emissions. And a carbon tax is one of the ways. The other way is uh, mandatory carbon permits, which is not a tax, but it, is, it does limit the amount of carbon that can be produced by an entity, producing entity. Well, that's exactly what I was going to raise, which is that we hear a lot about companies uh, offsetting carbon emissions with credits, particularly when it's a permit-based system. How does this actually work? Because there's a lot of discussion in politics around whether the sector-specific carbon emissions with credits works. 
and where the permits work for some of the sectors when other sectors are, are left out or how you include all sectors of the economy. So in your experience, you know, have you seen it work and is it making a difference? The thing to think about is carbon credits and carbon offsets are not the same thing. Carbon credits form part of the mandatory carbon market, like the one in the, the European Union. And basically, the European Union sets a cap on the amount of emissions an, an entity can emit. And that entity, if it goes above the, the cap, needs to buy credits. And credits would be obtained from other companies within the system who have not actually realized their full cap and so have credits to sell. The biggest issue seems to be that the price of carbon within the, the system isn't actually the, the real value of carbon. It needs to act, the prices actually need to rise to really reflect the cost of carbon. And when that, when we get that point, then the system will probably work more effectively. But it is definitely a good tool and something that needs to be explored more. Offsets, by contrast, are part of a voluntary market. So if you're a company and you are, know that you're going to be emitting and you want, it off, you want to reduce that, think about airlines. Airlines currently have no real way to, to be carbon neutral other than to use offsets. So they will purchase offsets on a voluntary market. The problem with a voluntary market is that it is, is, it is unregulated, unlike the, the, the cap and trade system of, that, that allows for regulation. So it's controversial because the entity that, that's using carbon offsets isn't actually reducing emissions themselves. They're simply buying credits into, and I say credits use the term loosely, by buying an offset, for example, a reforestation project. Um, the other thing about, about offsets is they have to actually comply with something called paver, which means that the offset has to be permanent, has to be additional, has to be verifiable, it has to be enforceable, which means that after you've had that offset used, it can't be used again by another entity or yourself again. And it has to be real. The actual reduction in carbon has to be has to be verified. It has to be shown. So it has to be a real reduction. Right now, there are a lot of offset schemes that don't actually comply with it. They aren't verifiable. So the claims that you've had a carbon offset aren't necessarily achieving anything. I hope that gives you a bit of a more clarity about carbon credits, carbon offsets, and where they're going. Now, that puts me to think around carbon capture as a term, because carbon capture, particularly uh, within uh, Australia and the US, has been used as a term uh, for a miracle cure, that carbon capture will save us all, and in particular in extractive industries, uh, and has been, I think, in the Australian political scene, uh, raised every year for about the last 25, as, uh, as just about to be beautifully effective. So... You know, what is carbon capture in its, its true sense and, and why is it important? I think one of the things that's quite useful to know is that Earth actually has a finite carbon cycle. The issue is that there's more carbon in the atmosphere and too little in the ground or in the ocean. But that's what really carbon capture is trying to address, is capturing the carbon in the air and either putting it into sinks or the other thing is using it elsewhere. So in industrial processes, for example. The, the, the real issue is that carbon capture is exceptionally expensive if you're doing it on an industrial scale, and the technology isn't quite there yet for it to have the economies of scale for it to be scaled across all industries. One of the most uh, well-known ones is, is one called Climeworks, which is creating carbon capture in, in Iceland, but it's still very much in its early stages, and uh, it'll be a while before the technology is actually there 
for it to be a viable everyday way of addressing carbon emissions and climate change. We hear the the term climate finance, climate markets uh, being thrown around quite a bit. What are these, first of all, if you could put that simply for us, and also what are they trying to achieve? So climate finance really refers to any kind of financial transaction, local, national, transactional, public or private, or, or anything, or any kind of financing, including like the Green Climate Fund, the uh, Global Environmental Fund. The purpose of is to actually fund climate mitigation and climate adaptation measures. Uh, a very good example of this is the Just uh, Energy Transition Partnership, which was created at COP26. The first such partnership was actually with South Africa. The EU, US, UK, Germany, and France agreed to mobilize $8.5 billion to address the economic and social challenges of transitioning South Africa away from a coal-reliant economy. So basically, it will upskill and reskill existing coal coal mining miners so that they actually have a future and will actually provide the funding to close down coal-fired power stations and establish alternative sources of energy. Uh, since then, there have actually been a couple more partnerships. One uh, at COP27, they announced partnerships with Indonesia and Vietnam, and in 2023 with Senegal. The other part of climate finance, which I, I managed, mentioned earlier, was the loss and damage fund, which was talked about at COP27 and actually established at COP28. And again, it's for developed countries to be funding developing countries in their transition, ad- addressing climate inequality, which is the ultimate goal of the loss and damage fund. Uh, now, Lisa, we hear a lot about uh, circularity, and in particular, circularity is being used much more uh, in in place of sustainability uh, when it comes to um, talking about local economies, national economies, and uh, the, the performance of companies. Is this just a fancy word for kind of recycling, reusing, or you know, closing the loop? In a simple word, yes. Because if you think about our current way of production, we take it, we make it, we use it, and we throw it away, and that's it. And billions and billions of tons of materials go into landfill or incineration, and neither of these are actually sustainable ways forward. So a circular economy is basically looking at you taking, you making, you using, and then you reusing, repurposing, refurbishing. You're basically trying to um, work out obsolescence out of the system. You're trying to make sure that materials are infinitely recyclable, but recycling is, it's not just recycling, it's actually reusing, repurposing. So for example, if you take your, your cell phone, when it goes to e-waste, if you know, if you look at the components that are made, used to make a cell phone, all the precious metals can then be extracted and reused because metals basically are infinitely recyclable. So it's just a, a way of, it's actually a systemic change of how we use materials and our natural resources. Just to follow up on on the fact mm-hmm. that does that clash with uh, some of the prerogatives effectively in market economies and with governments that promote economic growth? Because there there has been a move away from uh, products, consumer products particularly, long term, long lasting consumer products that are have parts that are replaceable, for example, to ones that you buy it and then it breaks down and then you buy another one. That that kind of thinking actually cannot continue. It, it, and it actually aligns a lot with, with GDP. There, it, there is no way to constantly increase growth if you're not accounting for your external, externalities of the environment and society. Because 
we simply do not have the natural resources available to us anymore. Resources, natural, both renewable and non-renewable are diminishing. And you, you know, you say, but they're renewable, like surely they should be able to regenerate. But if you're taking more than the natural system can regenerate, then it actually disappears. And, and a good example would be fish stocks. There are certain fish that you can no longer fish any longer because the stocks have been so badly depleted. There are not enough fish in the sea to actually regenerate that species of fish. And, and that's why there's a lot of talk about mass extinctions because we simply are using too many resources to a level that they cannot regenerate themselves. Uh, we haven't touched on renewable energy. Um, obviously, this is a very important term. Um, it's uh, I'm sure many people are hearing it everywhere. It's nothing new. Mm -hmm. But what are the main sources of renewable energy today? We know that for a long time, particularly those who have opposed the transition, have talked quite a lot about the costs associated with it compared to using fossil fuels as a form of energy. Where is that issue at? And also, how, how far are we in the whole transition process? I mean, are some of these renewable energy sources making a difference when it comes to the, the climate crisis? The simple answer is yes, it is making a difference. Um, so there, there are lots of sources of, of renewable energy. Hydropower has been one that's been in use for many, many years. Geothermal as well. Uh, Iceland is a prime example of geothermal energy use biomass, and then obviously much more in the public eye, solar power and wind power. Uh, for countries like South Africa and Australia, where we have so much sun, it, it makes eminent sense to actually use solar as your source of energy. And research has been done to say that, you know, the land used or required for solar panels is not then unavailable for other sources. So there are, there's quite a lot of research being done on where, what can be farmed underneath solar panels, and actually quite a lot. The thing about renewable energy is it produces no carbon. The equipment needed to produce the energy, however, does require carbon. But once you work at the carbon requirements to produce the materials to, for solar and wind energy, and you balance that off against the lifespan of the actual solar and wind producing equipment, it actually hits net, net zero very efficiently. For example, if you have an electric vehicle, after five years of having it and provided that you've used renewable energy to power the electric vehicle, it will be carbon neutral in terms of its carbon footprint. The other thing I think be, it's quite interesting, the International Energy Agency says that by 2025, renewable, renewables will be the largest source of electri electricity generation replacing coal. And by 2028, 42% of global electricity is expected to come from renewables. So definitely it is having a growing impact on climate change and reducing it's reducing our carbon emissions. So um, then also according to research from MIT, we have enough materials to power the grid globally with renewables. The challenge is actually to mine enough, fast enough, so that we can actually transition to renewables. So yes, we, we can actually transition. It's just we need to do it faster and more efficiently and making sure that the way we actually source the materials needed for renewable energy equipment is done in a sustainable manner. And it's good that you mentioned in a sustainable manner there, Dr. Pluck, for the sheer fact that we have a lot of companies across the, across the world and also uh, regulators are grappling with this, which uh, is the practice of greenwashing that companies uh, can engage in. Some governments can too as, as well. Now, what what is greenwashing 
and and how common is it and what what's what steps are kind of being taken to to combat some of it so greenwashing basically is putting out information which is either a misrepresentation or a misstatement or simply false and misleading about what a company is doing in terms of its green credentials um, and it and it can be something you know if you look at the number of organizations that promote better uh, environmental practices. A great example is the United Nations Global Compact. A huge number of companies have signed up to the U UN Global Compact. And it's so when you pu publish that in a report, it sounds good, but the proof is in the pudding. What are you actually doing to promote the principles of the UN Global Compact? Because if you're not doing that, then it really is a type of greenwashing because you're misleading the public as to what you actually are doing. You're signing up to a charter isn't it's just a first step it's not doesn't actually mean anything unless you're actually actioning that regulators are beginning to tackle it but i think one of the biggest drivers of being more cautious is litigation there's been a lot of a lot of a growing number of, of cases uh, where greenwashing is the basis of the claim uh, recently lufthansa had to pull an ad where where it had said consumers can fly more sustainably with it uh, air france uh, KLM and Etihad had similar similar claims made against them, and they had to had to be uh, withdraw those ads. Uh, a couple of years ago, Deutsche Bank was fined twenty five million dollars by the SEC for misstatements on its ESG investing. So definitely, it's it's something that companies have to be set up and take take note of, and have to be more accurate. And I think that that comes back to our earlier discussion about reporting. If you're reporting and you're reporting accurately, then your greenwashing shouldn't be able to be as, do, uh, as prevalent as it is. And then the, the one thing I'd just like to, to mention is while we are very aware of greenwashing, there's a new term and that's called bluewashing. And that is where misstatements re relate to your community engagements and social engagements. So that's another thing to watch out for in the future, not just greenwashing, but bluewashing too. Lisa, thank you very much. Um, we could spend about 10 episodes on trying to decode all of the, the different jargons um, associated with uh, sustainability, but you've done a, a wonderful job of um, going through, uh, I suppose, one of the, some of the most prominent ones. Um, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Hope to see you again. With pleasure. And that's been this week's episode of Put Simply. Be sure to follow Aroka Group on LinkedIn to stay up to date with all the latest news and podcasts. I've been your host, Ozan Ibrisim. Thanks for listening.